Hello and welcome back to Homefront with Benjamin Rose and myself, Gadali Gutentag, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Benjamin, hello to you. Hello, Gadalia. And sometime in the next day, we're expecting Secretary of State Blinken to make a return appearance to Israel. Obviously, his visit is timed with the end of the extension of the ceasefire. And the concept is obviously to try to extend the ceasefire even further. For America, this is especially important because only one American has been released so far out of all of the hostages. And the U.S. was hoping for more. I don't know why they're hoping instead of pressuring, but I'm hoping that when Secretary of State Blinken comes that he's coming to do more than hope and he's coming to put pressure on Qatar and put any pressure on the Arab world that he can so that uh, not only uh, U.S. interests are served, but eventually Israel is able to uh, continue uh, the military campaign that it needs to do in order to bring security back to the nation. So, I mean, Binyamin, the dynamic here is clear. Look, the U.S. has an interest in it, and it clearly has taken the very narrow angle view of this whole conflict. Instead of viewing it as an opportunity to finally clean house in the Middle East and to wipe the floor with Iran and its proxies, it has desperately sought to isolate and treat the Israel-Hamas war as just that, an Israel-Hamas conflict, whereas we know it's about something bigger. Having decided to do that, they want to shut this down as quickly as possible. And yes, they've talked about allowing Israel to get rid of Hamas, but at the same time, it looks like they're doing everything possible to make that very, very difficult, including, I, I would say the dynamic here is to draw out the ceasefire until the ceasefire dies, until the ceasefire, let's say, becomes such a reality that it's impossible or very, very difficult to restart a new campaign. That's the impression over here. Nidalia, you make an important point because the longer the pause, as we've said many times, the more difficult it's going to restart. Uh, I want to go back a couple of days to a November 26th interview that Jake Sullivan, who's the U.S. National Security Advisor, gave to uh, NBC. And he said that uh, the U.S. only supports Israel expanding its operations to southern Gaza, which means continuing the war after the ceasefire is over, if, quote, civilians have been accounted for, have the opportunity to be in safety, have access to humanitarian assistance, and to be out of the way of any military operation that is conducted. Now, he's come up with three or four conditions here that have nothing to do with Israel's safety, Israel's security, Israel's humanitarian needs, and uh, the military operation that Israel has to conduct in order to be successful in the southern part of Gaza. This is all one-sided. And unfortunately, it's another show of American weakness, just as America does not seem to be supporting Israel fully. But they're also not responding to the attacks against them. JINSA, which is one of the think tanks based in Washington that I follow, that's providing tremendous coverage of every angle of this conflict, mentioned that out of the 150 attacks against American positions during this war, America has only responded to nine of them and very weakly. So the U.S. is not putting up a strong show for force themselves. And the enemies of Israel and the enemies of the U.S., which are one and the same, are banking on this weakness and they're looking at it and they're taking advantage of it. And that really has to change if we're going to see any change in the dynamic of the war. I think the Biden people will tell you that, look, Israel has only one thing to be concerned about. The U.S. has to be concerned about Ukraine and Russia and it has to be concerned about China and Taiwan, etc. So there is an argument to be made from their point of view. They cannot get too embroiled in this. But you know what? I'm going to agree with you on this one, that there's nothing like a show of force in one place to make America's enemies 
wake up and sit up in a different place. And that is something that the Biden people are simply not prepared to do. But we don't want to understand the dynamic. We understand that the Hamas want to draw out longer and longer this ceasefire, as we keep saying, because in the interest to do so, it seems to be the Americans' interest to do so. It certainly is the narrative that the left all over the world wants to see happen. And Hamas are very savvy in tapping into that. So for example, they now have floated the idea yesterday of releasing soldiers in order to prolong the hostage exchange or the exchange to return the hostages. And now we know soldiers are a totally different thing. We know they have a history. Shalit, they did, in fact, exchange one soldier for a thousand Palestinian prisoners. It's win-win as far as the Hamas are concerned. When we've talked about the two parallel tracks Israel is on. It's hostages and fighting the war. So far, these two tracks have not converged and not clashed. But I think they will clash over the soldiers because at that point it becomes the case of soldiers, despite the fact they're somebody's uh, son and daughter, they are in fact part of an army. And if the army cannot get back to fighting because soldiers need to be returned, then, then that becomes a clash of, of two, two, it becomes a very serious clash, at which point Israeli leaders will be forced to, to choose between the two. And so I think that we're heading to that point. That is the point at which Israel will have to grapple and debate, uh, and a debate that's so far been avoided over soldiers. I think we're going to see this showdown as to what Israel is prepared to do. According to one report I saw, Hamas was trying to define soldiers as including women who were of army age, even if they weren't members of the IDF. So that shows how they're controlling the narrative. I had a conversation yesterday with a a lady named Shelly Shemtov, her son Omer, he's 21 years old, that, that, uh, he was at the concert or rave or whatever it was in Reim, and he was captured. He's army age, he was not in the army. And I asked her, do you have hope of getting him back? He said, look, I can't get inside the minds of murderers. How can you get inside the minds of people who burn babies? It's impossible to know what they think. But she fears that the military age male is going to be prime target for a master to adopt a maximalist stand over it. Before we break uh, today, Gedalia, I'd like to get into the mind of Elon Musk. He just uh, concluded a visit here to Israel. And of course, uh, Musk uh, is one of the uh, proprietors of satellite uh, services that uh, enables Gazans to keep in contact with each other. At the beginning of the conflict, there was a lot of reports about how the internet was either down or kept going down and Gazans couldn't communicate with each other. Then in steps Elon Musk and says, well, I've got a company called Starlink and I'm going to uh, hook up to satellite service so that they can communicate with each other. Again, a nice humanitarian move, but uh, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than meets the eye. I, I found it interesting that uh, Musk's visit was basically closed to the press. But yes, there were some pictures, but no interviews uh, that I'm aware of and no reporters tagging along. Uh, I know you have some thoughts on it. I'd like to hear what you say. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I've given Musk some thoughts, actually. If anyone's got a copy of his biography to lend me, I'm looking for that as well. I'm in the market for that. So that's uh, to listeners out there. But what I do think is, I find it worrying. Oh, there's two things. Number one is, as you note, the, the fact that his Starlink company can provide internet. And we know at the beginning of the Ukraine-Russia war, he basically shut down a major attack that was meant to be carried out by the Ukrainians or whatever it was on Crimea, because he said it's going to potentially cause World War III. And what we see there and what we're seeing over here again is the intervention of a man who is a very mercurial type of person, an uber billionaire. You don't know where he's going to stand at any given issue at any one time. And the fact is he's carved out for himself a state-level role in diplomacy and in geopolitics by virtue of his wealth and his clout and his control of his strategic assets. I think that's a tremendous problem in the world. But you know, when you talk about America's weakness, this is another symbol of American weakness. 30 years ago, the assets of communication were, were, were firmly in the hand of the United States. They should not be in the hand of a man like that. That's number one. Number two, Bibi and President Herzog have to basically go, Karim and to take this man around. 
And you have to understand, why is he here? Because they're so anxious, the fact to get him back on side. What has he got along and said? He said just last week, he tweeted his total agreement to something that was borderline. Well, it was seen as 10, 15 years ago, this would have been recognized clearly as an anti-Semitic trope in which he talked about that Jews have made problems for whites just as much as their victims, etc. And obviously this made massive press all over the left-leaning media who love this type of thing because they painted Musk as a righty, you know, as conservatives and enemy. But what distresses me, I don't think he's an anti-Semite in as much as he's just what we've got this tech bro, libertarian, cult, counterculturalism attitude of don't push me around, meaning on any given issue, if the liberal press are out there saying X, he's going to push back and say Y. That's just who he is. Now, that's fine if you're talking about half the stupid issues he gets into Twitter fights over. But the point, Benjamin, is that when it comes to anti-Semitism, what he tweeted yesterday in the aftermath of his visit, he says, actions speak louder than words, meaning I'm not anti-Semite looking me over here. And you're right. Actions do often speak louder than the words. But in the case of anti-Semitism, I'm afraid that doesn't cut it because words can do so, so, so much damage. And I think that Elon Musk, he's not going to listen. He's going to go back to being his own independent, mercurial type of operator. But he's doing deep damage because he's got this enormous platform. He's doing damage geopolitically. But for us Jewish people, I'm afraid that it's really bad news that he's gone out on a limb like this. And I'm afraid just a visit to Kfar Azad just won't cut it. He actually has to change those habits and realize that in terms of anti-Semitism, the words have meaning and power as well. That's what I have to say. He's not listening, but that's fine. He will listen when the advertisers continue to cancel like many of them have. Correct. This was part of the push to get back advertising. So you're right. So maybe that's hope as well. But anyway, Binyamin, I wish you and uh, listeners a good and fruitful day.